you can only do what you have the authority to do. I was thinking about authority this week when I thought about a story that Zach told me. When Zach and Rachel were in Swaziland and they were with Shabani, they were just going with him and told him, we just want to be a fly on the wall in your day and just kind of be with you as you do ministry there and see what you see and be a part of what you're, you're a part of. And if you know anything about third world countries, the traffic is atrocious. Parking is atrocious. Just to get from point A to point B is a nightmare. Well, Zach said that they're riding with Shabani and, you know, like, the traffic there is enough to get you right with Jesus. I mean, you, you, you hold, you know, white knuckles the whole way, right? And Zach said they're going through and the traffic is just backed up and they can't get through to where they need to go. Well, Swaziland is a monarchy. And so in Swaziland, what they have is they have a king who is the supreme power and supreme authority in all of the land. And whatever the king says, it goes. If, it's, if the king decides you're going to have a bad day, you're going to have a bad day. If the king decides you're going to be uh, wealthy, you're going to be wealthy. The king rules the land. Well, Shabani's, they're stopped in traffic and they can't get to where they need to go. And so Shabani pokes his head out and says, I'm here on an assignment for the king. And Zach said all those people were just getting everybody out the way. Come on through. Come on through. Luckily for Shabani, they didn't ask him which king. See, Shabani was there on an assignment from the king of kings. Not the king of Swaziland. But it's a good reminder to us that we are limited to accomplish only that which our authority will allow us to accomplish. One of the most common questions that I hear asked of Christians by non-Christians is, what gives you the authority to tell me that my life is wrong? What gives you the authority to tell me that what I am doing is sinful? What gives you the authority to say that one religion is greater than another religion? That one God is greater than another God? And the truth of the matter is, is that's a good question. And that's a fair question. Because all of us understand that we ourselves are sinners. All of us understand that there is nothing good about us. We have no inherent authority to tell any other person how they should live. We have no inherent authority to tell anybody else that they are wrong for their lifestyle because we ourselves are filled with specks in our own eye. And so this morning, that's the question I want us to wrestle with. That's the question that I think we can resolve in our text. What authority do we have to go to people, to go to our nations, to go to, to our neighbors and to go to the nations, to call on them to repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, if you've been with us for a while, you've been with us as we have preached all the way through the first nine chapters of Matthew, and so we come to chapter 10. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Matthew chapter 10, we will read the first 15 verses together. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. And to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon who is called Peter and Andrew his brother. 
James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belt, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. If you'll remember the way that Matthew chapter 9 closed down, Matthew chapter 9 closed down with Jesus saying that the harvest was plentiful, but the laborers were few. So you should pray that God would send out laborers. As we open up chapter 10, what I think we're seeing is that Jesus intends to answer this prayer. This is a prayer that Jesus has every intention of answering, that Jesus intends to send out laborers, that Jesus intends to send out into the fields workers, people that can sow the gospel and sow the good news that the kingdom has come in Christ. And so what we see here is Jesus calling to himself his disciples. Now the list of men that he calls, he gives to us in Matthew chapter 10. It's the only place in Matthew where we have all of the disciples. He even uses the word apostle here throughout all of his gospel. And when you read through the list of men that Jesus is going to use to help answer this prayer for workers, it's not a very impressive list. It's not a very attractive list. As a matter of fact, as these men would go through the early days of the church and you read through the book of Acts, what you find is is essentially everywhere that these men go, the people that they meet are relatively unimpressed. They meet these men and they are struck by how unqualified these men are for the work that they are taking up. They stand before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin wonders how they can speak with the gumption and the authority that they have because these were uneducated and common men. Among those, we don't know what many of the disciples did for a living, but the ones that we do know, we know that they were fishermen and tax collectors. These were not people that would have held high standing in the community. Fishermen were just a middle class group of people. They weren't impoverished, but they weren't filthy rich either. They were just working blue collar people that did a good job and worked and made an honest living so that they could go home and provide for their families. These were not people that were qualified to be religious teachers. These were not people that were qualified to stand and to teach the law of God or to teach the prophecy of God. And then you have the tax collector, and we all know, having been around and and heard the gospel preached, that tax collectors were some of the most reviled people in all of the land. 
They were traitors to their country. They were swindlers. They were crooks. They were dishonest people. And yet, this is who God, Jesus has called. These are the men that Jesus has surrounded himself with. These are the workers that he intends to send out into the field. Tax collectors and fishermen. Sailors and sinners. These are the ones that God, that Jesus endeavors to use. You see, the only thing that, they, that qualified them to do the work, the only qualification that they had, in fact, the only qualification for any disciple of Jesus is one thing. They were called by Jesus to do it. They were called by Jesus to do it. Jesus called them, it says in verse 1 of chapter 10. Jesus called them to come to him. Jesus called, And then they went. That is the only qualification for them. Remember back in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is on the boat with all with these four fishermen and Andrew and Peter and James and John. And he's there and they haven't caught anything all day long. And they, they drop the net over the side of the boat and... All of a sudden, the boats are so filled with fish, they begin to sink. And do you remember what Jesus says to them? Jesus says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They weren't fishers of men yet. They weren't equipped for that. They weren't qualified for that. They caught guppy, not men. But Jesus says, you come. I'm going to do the making. You come, I'm going to make you who you need to be. You come to me, you follow me, you go with me, and I'm going to bring the transformation in your life. I'm going to make you fit for the mission that is at hand. What we see in chapter 10 is it's time to fish. It's time to fish. Jesus has been pouring into them. Jesus has been equipping them. Jesus has been preparing them. And now it's time for them to fish. In Matthew 8 and 9, Matthew used those two chapters to establish for us the authority of Jesus. Do you remember that? That We see Jesus having authority over the physical world as he tells Jairus' daughter to rise from the dead. As he tells a paralyzed man to take up his mat and to walk. We see him uh, helping the, the blind, helping the deaf, and healing the woman with the issue of blood. We see him not only with uh, authority over the physical, but we see over, uh, authority over the natural world. You'll remember he's with the disciples on the boat, and the boat begins to be swamped with waves, and the winds are rocking. And you remember where Jesus was? Jesus was sound asleep. Jesus was sleeping like he knew God was in control of all of this, right? And they wake Jesus up, and what does Jesus do? Jesus rebukes the wind. Who rebukes wind? The wind sits down like a disciplined child. He shows authority over the spiritual world. You'll remember then one day there's a a man that is uh, possessed by a legion of demons. And the demons see Jesus and they begin to tremble. And they begin to cry out and plead with him for mercy. And yet it was to no avail as Jesus cast them out of the man and into a flock of swine, a herd of swine that he sends plummeting over the side of a cliff. Jesus has the authority. And what do we see in chapter 10? What is he going to use this authority to do? What is he going to use this authority to accomplish that is now established? Verse 1 says he gives it to his disciples. He gives it to his disciples. That he takes this authority that has been proven in chapters 8 and 9. And now that it's time to fish. Now that the mission is at hand. That Jesus is going to give his authority to his disciples. 
He's giving it to them so that they can now share in his mission. Jesus is empowering his disciples. He is filling his disciples with an authority that is not their own. Filling them with an authority that they can't have otherwise. Think about what this must have been like for the disciples. They had been with Jesus as he had done all of these things, right? They had watched as Jesus had caused this man to get up that had been paralyzed for life, as much as we know, to get up and to walk out carrying his his mat. They had been there the day that Jairus' daughter was laying on the bed dead and all of the community was already there mourning and wailing and gnashing. And yet Jesus goes in and he says, hey, young girl, get up and go home. They were there that day on the boat when they experienced the waters flooding the boat and they were bailing and bailing and bailing knowing that they were fixing to sink, knowing that they were fixing to die when all of a sudden the storm stopped in a second. They had witnessed it. They had experienced it firsthand. But now, now they were going to be a part of it. Now Jesus was empowering them to be a part of it. Now they would go with the authority to heal. Now they would go to the authority to cast out demons. Now they would go with the authority to do the work that Jesus had for them to do. Jesus was beckoning his disciples to go out and to accomplish the mission, his mission. We see that, I think, in verse 5. Notice what it says in verse 5. It says, these twelve Jesus sent out. This is what Jesus always does. Jesus calls, right? None of us are qualified. We've got doctors and lawyers. We've got teachers and bankers. We've got cabinet builders and coaches. We've got renowned sinners. And we've got renowned people for self-righteousness. And yet none of you are qualified or disqualified based on who you are or what you've done. You're called, right? Jesus has called you. He has called you to the word that if you would take up your cross and follow him, you could be a part of it. But he didn't just call you. He doesn't just call his disciples. He empowers them. He fills them with his authority. He fills them with his power. He fills them with his word, right? He fills it. But he doesn't just fill you to sit in the pew. He doesn't just fill you to hang out at home. He calls you, he empowers you, and then he always, always, always sends you out. He sends you out. Jesus intends for his disciples to share in his mission. Always. He calls, he empowers, he sends out. He gives you the call of God, the power of God, the approval of God to go out and to work in the mission of God. Now, the mission that the disciples were called to here to in chapter 10 is a very specific one. He says, don't go to the Gentiles yet. Don't don't go to any of the land of the Gentiles. Don't go to the land of Samaria. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, why would he do that? You see, God had made a promise to his people. God had made a promise that one day uh, from the throne of David, he would resurrect his kingdom. Right now they were scattered. They were lost sheep that had gone astray because of their own sinfulness and because of their own unfaithfulness. But one day he was going to send a faithful shepherd. He was going to send the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. And he was going to gather them all together. Ezekiel 34. In Isaiah 53, it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have lost our path. We have lived in sin. We have lived lives that are unfaithful. But one day... 
he is going to send a suffering servant. And he's going to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The sin of us all will be upon him so that one day he might make us righteous again. So that he might gather us together as the flock of God. Now God will often do more than he's promised, but he will never do less than he's promised. And so he has come showing that now he's here. The suffering servant is here. The good shepherd is here. He is here in Christ Jesus. Go and tell. Go and tell my people that I followed up my promise. Go and tell my people that I've fulfilled my prophetic word. Go and let them know. You see, the mission that they have is really a remarkable one. It's a remarkable one. Not only do they get to share in the mission of Jesus, they get to share in the fulfillment of God's prophetic word. They are going to share in the fulfilling of prophecies that had come hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years prior to them. And yet they, disciples, sinners and sailors and fishermen and tax collectors, uneducated, common men, were going to get to be a part of the fulfillment of God's prophetic word. It's a remarkable thought that these guys can be a part of that. Now, Jesus commands them to go and do this, doesn't he? He commands them. He doesn't ask. He says, go and heal people. He says, go, cast out the demons. Go, preach to them and tell them that the kingdom has come. Now, for us, we don't usually associate commandment with good news, right? We don't usually associate commandments with a good time. But doesn't this sound like fun? Doesn't this sound exhilarating? This, is the, this would be like somebody handing you the keys to a Ferrari on the Autobahn and commanding you to drive fast. I'm in, man. Let's go. That is a commandment I can live out. To be filled with the power of Christ. To be filled with the authority of Christ and then commanded to go and exercise it? Sign me up. I'm in on that. Like, I'll, I'll cast out some demons. Let's do that. Let's do that right now. Some of you got demons. Let's do that after church. That would be fun. Let's go. But to be filled with the power of the man that I watch still a storm? I want to I be a part of that. Right? The mission of Jesus, the command of Jesus is binding. It's, it's not negotiable, but it is not burdensome. It is not burdensome. It is a privilege. It is a joy to be sent out as his people. Now, when you think about the, the message that they have, that when you think about the words that they are to preach, it probably sounds very familiar to you, right? It, it, it says that they are to uh, go in verse 7 and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you think back to... Matthew chapter 3, isn't this exactly the same words that John the Baptist preached? He would preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and be baptized. In Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus' baptism and temptation, this is exactly what he does. He goes and he preaches, the kingdom of God is at hand. Be, uh, be, be, repent and be baptized. And then Jesus begins to heal people. He begins to cast out demons, showing his authority, showing his divine power. And now in chapter 10... We have the disciples with the same message, with the same authority, with the same power, for the same purpose. They are to go and to tell people to repent and be baptized. And guess what happens in Matthew chapter 28? In Matthew chapter 28, it comes to us. 
It was John the Baptist, Jesus, the original disciples, and now the New Testament church, the New Testament disciples. And what happens in Matthew 28? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? Just like the original disciples were given the authority of Jesus, we now are given the authority of Jesus. We stand in a lineage coming back from Christ, going all the way, we can see to the John the Baptist, but now all the way, and we are able to share in the mission of Jesus with the authority of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. This is the essence of the Christian life. The essence of the Christian life is to live out the mission of Christ through the power of Christ for the glory of Christ. And this is what he has called us to do. But it gets better. You realize that not only did the original disciples get to be a part of the fulfillment of prophecy, you do too. You. You, you teach school in Calhoun County. Like, you, you work in here. But Zephaniah and, and many other places, but I'm thinking specifically of Zephaniah chapter 3. It talks about how, how one day uh, every nation and every people, people from all around the globe, will be preaching and, and proclaiming Christ's glory and proclaiming that God is, uh, is infinitely glorious and will be living obediently to him and, and submission to him. And do you know how that's going to happen? It's going to happen through the ministry of the church. That's going to happen through you and me. We get to share with Jesus in the fulfillment of his kingdom and at the same time share in the fulfillment of God's prophetic word. You and me get to be a part of that. It's an exhilarating journey. Has it ever crossed your mind that God is using you, you, Teenagers and children, grandparents and young marrieds. He's using you to fulfill words that he spoke thousands of years ago, knowing, declaring the end before the beginning even began. I say all of that to say this. If there has never been a time in your life, if there has never been a point in your life in which you have experienced a profound desire to share in the mission of Jesus. If there has never been a point in your life, or if you are not currently at a point in your life in which you have a deep-seated in your soul, in your bones desire to be a part of the mission of Jesus and the proclaiming that the kingdom has come, then you have every reason in the world to question whether or not you are one of his disciples. You have every reason to question whether or not you know him at all. Those he calls, he empowers. Those he empowers, he sends out. If you've never been sent out, I don't believe you have ever been called, brothers and sisters. Why would he fill you with power to live an ordinary life? Why would he fill you with power to watch football all day and not care about a single person? Why would he fill you with power to live as comfortably as you can now? Why would he do that? You don't need power for that. No, he has called you. And if he has called you, he has empowered you with his divine authority. 
And if he has empowered you with his divine authority, he has commanded you to go, to take part in this exhilarating mission that he has called all of us to. He has handed you the keys to the Ferrari on the Autobahn and commanded you to drive fast, to go. Brothers and sisters, I ask you to evaluate your heart. Be honest with yourself. Can you genuinely say that you know that's true? Can you genuinely say that it gets you out of bed in the morning to be a part of the mission of Christ? Can you say it? What authority do we have to tell people to repent and be baptized? We have no authority to do that. Christ has authority to do that. We don't go in our own authority. We go in his authority. Therefore go. Why? Because all authority has been given to him from heaven and earth. We go in his authority. I think he spends the rest of the text here now telling us how it is that it's going to look as we go, how it's going to look as we go, what our lives are going to look like as we go, as we live out this mission, and what we can expect as we go. Look with me. First, we'll look at first how is it that it's going to look as we go. You'll notice in verse 9. Actually, let's back up to the last part of verse 8. It says, You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or tunics or sandals or staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Now that sounds like a difficult life to me. What Jesus says is he says, no bags, no houses, no extra clothes, no, no nice garments, no, no name brand belts. Just basic provision. Just food. That as you go a part of this mission... As you share in my mission and you go in my name, remember my lifestyle. Remember the the shape of my ministry. Remember the shape of my life. That not only are you sharing in my mission, you are sharing in my lifestyle. You see, Jesus came back as the Messiah. It was true. The kingdom had come. But he didn't come the way that they expected him to come. Jesus was the king of the universe, yet he didn't live in a palace or a castle. He had no place to lay his head. From everything that we know, Jesus very likely often went hungry. Jesus perhaps owned nothing else in all of the world except the clothes on his back. And he's reminding his disciples of that. That Jesus might be in this town today and another town tomorrow. Jesus had to be mobile. He had to know, not knowing whether a town would throw him out or let him in to begin with. And he's saying, this is going to be your life, dear men. As you go out in my name, as you go out in my authority, as you go out with my message, you need to understand that you are going out to share in a hardship, a lifestyle that will be difficult for you. A lifestyle that is going to be challenging and a change. Now, this sounds like a nomadic life, doesn't it? This sounds like a nomadic life. But Jesus was calling his disciples to this for a very distinct purpose. 
You see, in Jesus' day, the religious teachers and philosophers would go, and they would go house to house, and they would often stay in houses when the, in the town that they were in as they traveled among the town. But they would go, and they would be dressed in great opulence. They would go, and they would be wearing the finest clothes that money could buy. And they would go, and they would be, uh, have the, the biggest gold rings with gems. And they would have bags. And they would go from house to house to house showing them what they could have if they would give and purchase God's favor. They would stay in a home, and they would ask for money. And the bag that they carried, the bag that Jesus is commanding his disciples not to carry, is a bag that was requesting money. Money so that they might be able to bless the home. But Jesus says, not you. Freely I give to you, and freely you will give to them. My grace is not bought. My grace isn't that cheap. My grace was purchased for the price of my blood, and it is freely given to all who will come. So Jesus' disciples were to be set apart with a radical lifestyle. Jesus' disciples were to be set apart with a self-denying, nomadic lifestyle. This was the type of life that you literally didn't know where you were going to be tomorrow. You literally didn't know that if you were going to be drugged out of a house with a borrowed pillow and a borrowed bed, drugged into the street and beaten because of what you were saying and what you were doing. Paul details so many of his own struggles as he goes and how he's shipwrecked and imprisoned and beaten and left for dead. Five times he got 39 lashes. It was a life that you really didn't know where you would be next year. You really didn't know what you could keep. And you couldn't carry with you a large amount of possessions. All of those things had to be left behind. Brothers and sisters, this is the life of a disciple. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter is toward the back of your Bible, almost in Revelation. I want us to read the words that Peter wrote. Peter is writing these words to a deeply persecuted church. And this is the hope that he gives them. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like, the lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In verse 17, if you write in your Bible, I want you just to circle the word exile. Exile. Read with me chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, circle sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Brothers and sisters, this is not home for us. Do you understand? This is not home for us. We live today not knowing where we will be called to go tomorrow. We are exiles here. We are sojourners here. We are pilgrims here, carrying through only what's on our backs, knowing that the earthly treasures can't fit through the customs department of heaven anyway. We are exiles and sojourners, wandering, 
Not holding tightly to the things of this earth, but knowing that our country is the next country to come. Knowing that our land is the next land to come. Knowing that the life that we are living for has nothing to do with right now. We don't need a bag, and we don't need gold, and we don't need copper belts. We don't need to acquire all of these things because we live as Jesus lived, without a palace and without a castle, without deep roots on earth. We are exiles. Don't be deceived into believing that you are where you are supposed to be. This is not your home. You should not live comfortably here. I'm not saying this morning that it's a sin for you to own a house. And I'm not saying that it's a sin for you to live your whole life in one community. What I'm saying is is that if you are a disciple of Jesus, then there is nothing on earth that can hold you back from the sending call of Jesus. Nothing. There are people probably in the room this morning that you think you can't be a missionary because you have small children. And you have made your children an idol. And it is a dangerous thing to make your children an idol. Some of you have decided that you can't go on mission because of the house that you bought. You've purchased an idol. You've purchased something that will keep you from a faithful life in Christ. Some of you say, I will never go here and I will never do that. I can never go across the ocean to tell people about Jesus. I can never leave home and go to people that I don't know. I just don't talk forwardly like that. Brothers and sisters, don't worry about what people think here. Don't be comfortable here. Don't live for here. Your roots are not here. You are living for another kingdom. You are living for another world. You are living the mission of Jesus in the lifestyle of Jesus. You are an exile. You are a sojourner. Pack light, brothers and sisters. The earthly treasures can't fit through the narrow gate of heaven anyway. Not only has he called us to share in his mission and share in his lifestyle, but he has called us to share in his sufferings. To share in his sufferings. It is the theme, I think, of 2 Timothy. As Paul looks at this young preacher, Paul on the edge of death, and he looks at this young preacher named Timothy, and he says, share in the sufferings of the gospel. Share in the sufferings of the cross. Share in the mission of Jesus and in the way of Jesus and in the death of Jesus. Share. This is a world of crosses, brothers and sisters. This is a world filled with crosses. And if you're going to follow after Jesus, you're going to have to lay on one. If you're going to follow after Jesus, you're going to have to take it up. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 10 and see what I'm saying. He says, beginning in verse 12, I'm verse 13, I'm sorry. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Jesus says, people are going to reject you. People are going to reject you. 
You're going to go and you're going to have my message. You're going to tell them that the kingdom has come. You're going to tell them that salvation is here. You're going to tell them to repent and be baptized. And they're going to look at you like a fool and take you outside the town and beat you with rods. So he says, shake off the dust off your feet. Shake the dust off your feet. As I, most of my life, as I have heard that passage, I've heard it said that this passage means that we shouldn't care what people, that we shouldn't care that people reject us. Or we shouldn't care that people reject Christ, that we should just move on. I don't think that's what it's saying. Jesus, every time, whether he was rejected or accepted, was moved with compassion. He always cared. It bothered him. It deeply disturbed him when people rejected him. When people willfully despised him. It profoundly disturbed him. Jesus is not saying in this passage, don't care. Jesus is saying in this passage, don't stop. Don't stop. As you are rejected, as you are reviled, as you are despised, as you are insulted, as you are persecuted, keep on going, disciples. Keep on going in the authority that I have given you. Keep on going in the strength that I have given you. Keep on going on the mission that I have sent you out on. Dust off your feet doesn't mean don't care. Dusting off your feet means just don't stop as the rejection comes. Justice and salvation are the Lord's. Justice and salvation are the Lord's. They will receive a, a just punishment for their crimes. They will receive a just punishment for their sin. They will uh, experience something worse than what Sodom and Gomorrah experienced. That's not your concern. Be profoundly bothered. Be deeply burdened. But don't stop. Keep going. What's stopping you? What's stopping you? Why don't you go? Why don't you tell your friends at school? Why don't you tell the coaches that you coach with? Why don't you tell the men and women that you go to work and see every single day? Why don't you go on a mission trip? Why don't you go tell people that have never heard about Jesus about Jesus? Why don't you fly over the ocean to tell them that they can be glad in Christ Jesus? Why don't you go? What's stopping you? I think in the text, Jesus is getting to one of the most common reasons we don't go. We fear rejection. We fear being disapproved by our friends. We fear being disapproved by the people around us that can't understand the gospel call on our lives. We fear that they will look down on our family. And because we are paralyzed by this fear and because we live in such insecurity, needing the approval of everybody and needing to be liked by everybody, we dress like them and drive like them and build a house like them and do what they do so that we might be like them and be approved by them. What is Jesus saying to us this morning? Dust your feet of the approval of man. Dust your feet of your incessant need to be liked by everybody. Dust your feet of the need to feel normal here, to live a normal American life, a normal teenage life, a normal college life, a normal family life. Shake your dust off the need to live a normal life. You aren't worried about the judgment of men. You are worried about the judgment of God and God alone. You are his people. You are his disciples. He is the one that you care for. Brothers and sisters, if we genuinely care about the people that we live with, 
if we care about those in our home, if we care about those in our community. Jesus is clear that most of them are on the wide path. Most of them are headed to destruction. We should be less concerned about making them like us and more concerned that they will face an awful judgment like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Worry not about their approval, but about their soul, brothers and sisters. But not only do we share in his life and share in his, in his uh, sufferings, but the implication of the judgment that goes to Sodom and Gomorrah for all those who reject, the implication is the reverse. To send a stark contrast of the inheritance that will be received by all of us who are in Christ. See, one day we will no longer be suffering servants. And one day we will no longer be exiles. One day we will no longer be sojourners. One day we will be home. And when we are home, all of this melts away. And we will not only share in his sufferings at that moment, we will share in his inheritance. An inheritance that only he has owned, earned and only he deserves. So don't worry about what you have to give up right now. Don't worry about the sleepless nights that might be ahead. Don't worry about that you might not be at home next year. Focus on the inheritance that is already yours in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would mobilize our church for your mission. I pray that we would be a people that lives and is called by Christ Equipped by Christ, sent out by Christ for the glory of Christ. Lord, don't let us be faint-hearted. Don't let us be weak. But instead, let us go out in your authority. Let us go out in your power. Let us not live for what we can acquire and accumulate here. Rather, let us live in sight of the inheritance that is to come. Knowing that it is a glorious and worthy inheritance. That we will, that moths and rust cannot.